You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, I want to start out by reminding you that Wealth Formula Podcast is hosted by WealthFormula.com. And if you go there on the internet, you will find all sorts of other resources to check out, including free books for me, the likes of George Newberry, etc. You'll find reports. You'll be able to sign up for things like the Accredited Investor Club, which is really where a lot of the action happens. And of course, you can also sign up for our private community, Wealth Formula Network there as well. And uh, don't forget about it because you're only getting part of the action by listening only and not taking uh, taking the extra step and going there and signing up for stuff. So um, today uh, I want to start out by telling you or reminding you of my personal paradox. Uh, you see, I've got this thing where the more I invest in real estate, the less I pay in taxes. And that's because of this real estate professional designation, which, you know, some of you may qualify for. You may qualify for this. And if you do, uh, I highly recommend it. You see, the situation that I've got is that every time I invest in real estate, effectively, a good chunk of my investment becomes deductible because of something called bonus depreciation and the fact that I can write that bonus depreciation off against active income because of my designation. Now, it could be worse. I could not have the designation and not be able to apply passive losses to all sorts of income the way I can right now. So frankly, uh, I can't complain. It's a good problem to have, but it is a paradox. Nonetheless, my situation makes me think about the profound impact of this thing that uh, people talk about in microeconomics all the time. The idea simply is that people do what they are incentivized to do so. So, for example, you know, the tax law in general is a series of incentives because the government wants you to do certain things. If they want you to invest in oil and gas, they will make it beneficial to you. From a tax perspective, people follow these incentives and that's all I'm doing. And it's really powerful, right? I have these profound tax advantages from investing in real estate. And because of that, it makes me hyper aware of investments and expenditures that actually don't have any tax advantages. Uh, so it's weird because it sort of magnifies all these things that sometimes you don't even think about, right? I mean, my friends who invest in the equity markets, they don't even think about the idea that investing could, you know, reduce their tax liability. Why? Because it doesn't. Why? That's why. They never even thought about uh, uh, investing as a way of reducing taxes. Anyway, so this is the reason that I won't even consider investing in the equity markets, None, the, you know, beyond the systemic risk, beyond the volatility, beyond, you know, the minuscule gains, frankly, um, that you get most of the time. Uh, if I'm operating outside of my real estate happy place, as I like to call it, uh, there better be one of a few things. There, there should be either a tremendous opportunity for yield. Okay, so that's my asymmetric risk stuff, you know, like Bitcoin or whatever. Uh, there, there should maybe have a benefit beyond just the investment, 
Wealth formula banking, for example, the ability to take the money, invest in a couple places at the same time, or the fact that there's actually a death benefit for people uh, that I love and care about. And so that makes sense too. So there's something else there that's compelling that actually gets me out of my happy place. Otherwise, it's, it's a tough sell, frankly. Now, it's tricky because this kind of thinking doesn't necessarily get me all the things that I want, you know. Uh, as a car guy, uh, this has put me in a difficult spot. I love cars, especially Italian sports cars. But buying a Ferrari, for example, off the lot just makes no economic sense at all. And I am cursed with having this desire to make economic sense. It's guaranteed to depreciate you know, driving it off the lot, no less than 50% over, you know, the next 15 to 20 years. And maybe at that point, uh, you get lucky and you buy something that's actually going to uh, regain value over time. I mean, certainly I've thought about this ad nauseum. Another option I've even thought about is focusing on, say, a maximally depreciated sports car, say something 10 or 15 years old, you know, it's depreciated. It's going to probably not going to go out down too much more in value but uh, it has a possibility of going up. So that's another possibility. So at least you don't lose value. Now listen, what I'd really like to do though, uh, truth be told, is something I've talked about before, which is eventually I have a collection of classic cars. And I've mentioned this before that I also almost pulled a trigger uh, a few months back ago uh, after I had this uh, eye-awakening moment of a perceived near-death experience and it sort of made me think, well, gosh, why am I not doing things that I um, that I like? You know, I mean, and, and that's that's very true. But the problem is that when you're as dense as me, and you uh, and these microeconomic incentives are have so much power over you, it's it's tough to see the light. Um, and of course, I also realized that I didn't really have the garage space uh, to park a multiple six figure investment at this current time. So for now. I'm still driving my Prius. However, to be clear, I still love the idea of buying things that I l love uh, and that will likely appreciate over time. And again, this goes back to a simple concept, which is nothing that you buy from Ikea will ever go up in value. So why not buy some things that are maybe more expensive now, maybe a lot more expensive now, but last forever and that you can enjoy for a lifetime and sell them at a profit someday. Totally different paradigm of living and thinking about your daily stuff. And I love that idea. Uh, anyway, hopefully over time, I'll actually follow my own advice because I, again, I still think it's a very cool way to live. Uh, and soon enough, uh, uh, for me, it will be my car collection. In the meantime, I have found a super cool business that kind of lets you be an armchair quarterback, um, you know, sort of the fantasy football version of, you know, owning the classic cars. And it is a uh, is a super cool business that allows you to own a fraction of your favorite classic or rare supercar and actually trade those shares via an online marketplace. I'm not talking about virtual cars. I'm talking about the actual cars, you know, like a, like a, you know, one of a kind uh, Ferrari that's, you know, you know, back from the sixties or something like that. Uh, anyway, it is a very cool business called Rally Road. And right now it deals primarily with these collectible cars and it 
Um, and it, interestingly enough, functions solely as a mobile application. Um, it is a absolutely fascinating business model, one that I think you may particularly enjoy if you like the idea of combining your hobbies with investing or if you like to know what's going on in fintech uh, because this is sort of cutting-edge stuff. So this week, we are going to interview one of the co-founders of Rally Road. His name is Rob Petrozo, and we will be back with Rob right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in Wealth Formula podcast is Rob Petrozo. Rob is the co-founder of RallyRoad.com. That's RallyRD.com. Uh, Rally Road is an app-based exchange for buying and selling equity in assets such as ultra-rare classic cars, something near and dear to my heart. Rob, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Rob, thank you so much for having me. Sincerely appreciate it. I'm glad it's near and dear to your heart as well. It makes <laughs> feel good. Well, yeah, it's funny because uh, uh, we actually connected after I did a uh, interview with a, a colleague of well, a friend of, of yours and, uh, uh, who was in, into rare art. And I, you know, I was like, wow, it's kind of like cars in a way. Right. And then he's like, well, if you like cars, you got to meet Rob because he's doing cars. So here we are. So give us a little background, um, on yourself. I mean, what were you doing before this venture, which we'll get into in detail uh, a little bit later, but how did you, you know, start out and end up where you are now? Yeah, so my uh, my career trajectory has very much been a lot of it's been a mix of sort of design and a little bit of finance, and those two things together, I think, were the sort of the the precipice for getting to where we are right now as a company. So, I was in school in the in the two thousands, and it's an era when design was very different than it is right now, and product and websites, all that stuff was very almost archaic compared to where it is right now. So, a lot of what I had was very much self taught. So, learning a little bit of code, learning a little bit of design in school. But getting out of school in around 2006, 2007, when uh, the iPhone had just come out, and in New York in particular, there were so many new companies trying to do something with the iPhone and sort of bring that experience to life. They can kind of see where the app store was going to be and where all these third-party applications were going to be. So I wound up um, working at a company called Scroll Motion. I was one of their early employees building out a big digital publishing company where we would take a bunch of existing content from big banks, companies like Citigroup and, uh, and some big players in the pharmaceutical space like Genentech and Roche is about bringing all their sales and training and all this material to life from what was printing material and making it interactive. So it led to a couple of stops at a bunch of big startups. Um, I was at a company called Kimi here in New York, which is a computer vision play. I uh, built out a bunch of internal software for hedge funds here in New York as well, who are going through this big transition between 2010 and now where, you know, everybody kind of expects everything they're doing, whether it's finance or whether it's sort of uh, you know, investing or whether it's just general consumer behavior on a phone and have it look and feel like the things they use most. So I've been a designer and building out product for all these individual instances for a long time. And things like classic cars and, and rare collectibles, all these things have been a part of my life for a long time. So talking with a couple of friends who are in the space about what we want to do next. And this is kind of a natural progression. How did the, uh, the idea of doing some kind of an exchange, where did that come from? Was there like a yeah, moment? That, where... that was a, uh, a mix of a few things. One, and I think, you know, you know this well, and what, what real estate's kind of done since, since, you know, 2008 to now, I think a lot of people missed out on a lot of things yeah. from the bottom to where we are now in 2019. And one of those things 
was the idea of alternative assets. So myself, um, two of my close friends, uh, my co-founders, Max and Chris, who I've known for you know, 20 and 15 years respectively, Max coming from Barclays, he was doing a bunch of private placement deals. Chris was a kind of a serial entrepreneur and somebody that I really respected in the space who kind of knew all the ins and outs of, of what building a company from scratch would be. And then me from the product standpoint, having built out all these apps, we knew we wanted to work together in some capacity. We also knew that we had missed out individually ourselves on all these great investments that I think you could have gotten at a really meaningful price point with a, a, a big chunk of equity and wrote it over the last 10 years. One of those spaces was classic car, something that we all really cared about, but something that I think there was this huge delta between the haves and the have nots. So the idea of going to an auction, seeing those prices and understanding this stuff and really caring about it and having the sort of money and the connections to get involved, there's a massive delta there. So we knew that was a space that A, we cared about, B, was ripe for disruption, and seems a space we had all kind of missed the boat when it comes to sort of putting your money where you're not, does it make an investment? Yeah. So we started talking about what this could be and where the exchange aspect of it might live, where we can kind of marry the experience with the financial sort of end of it. And this was a natural conversation that we had. We just started kind of building it. Well, as, as traditionally, um, you know, you're alluding to, this has not been a market open uh, to many investors, you know, dropping a lot of, a lot of cash on individual assets there certainly is, you know, ways to, uh, you know, leverage and, and get a loan on these types of things. But talk, talk about, you know, um, you know, traditionally where this market has been, who the investors have been, um, and, you know, what kinds of potential returns they have seen historically. Yeah. So when you think about sort of, uh, the asset class as a whole, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with classic cars and collector cars in general, especially sort of the top of the top, you're looking at three, four, and 500% returns, sort of a little bit uncorrelated, but within individual groups over the last decade, let's call it. Within that, you have pockets of sort of untapped gems, the way we look at it, where you have what's happening now in the space with 80s and 90s sort of collector vehicles, stuff that's really low mileage, that's from the European producers, whether it's a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, and are sort of created in very, very small batches that were very rare to begin with. A lot of them were the last of true manual transmissions or really small samplings of what would be something that would evolve and turn into a new model. Those are being, those are really highly sought after right now where you're seeing gains in those spaces trump what were the traditional classic car gains. So when we look at the next generation of collector, the 30 year old, the 40 year old, even the 50 year old now, what they're remembering the nostalgia is that 70s, 80s and 90s. And that's what we've been really focusing a lot of our attention on and personal investments also for the app. So whereas you would normally see, you know, we don't really annualize returns. A lot of them move very independent. In our app, some of the stuff that's done best over this period, over the last two years, call it, are things you wouldn't necessarily expect. So things like um, 90s era Ford Mustangs, which were of a really small sampling, a very specific few, like one that we have was uh, part of a 7-Up promotion for the NCAA that wound up getting pulled last second. But they have all these really unique versions of that vehicle around. So we have one of the best examples. This year, it's up 43% in our app. And then we have stuff that's a little bit more, a little less esoteric, I should say, like Ferrari Testarossas, which to a big group of the, the core collectors who would go to the Sotheby's and the Goodings to make their purchases were kind of under the radar. They weren't things they cared about. But now we have a really great group of collectors who realize what the, the, the potential for a car like, you know, an early model Testarossa, some of the flying mirror versions from 85 and 86 which now are starting to sort of come into focus and they're still in the under half a million dollar range, but they show really well and they're starting to sort of get a little bit of upward trajectory on them. That's the stuff that we care about. I think a lot of collectors are moving into as well now. So what about the, I guess, like who were the collectors before and who are they typically? I mean, are they, do they tend to be 
Um, you know, when you talk about the collectors, I mean, obviously they've got to have enough money to do it, but are you, I mean, is this an area that's, uh, you know, for just billionaires or is it also for, you know, high paid professionals? Who, who are you seeing buying this stuff traditionally? I mean, who's, who's been the buyers of these things? Yeah, I think you're pretty much spot on. It's both of those groups. So you have the sort of people who look at these collections as a financial investment and they get access that, that billionaire or like the hundred millionaire is always going to get access to the best possible stuff and they get it in bulk. So when they're making the purchase, it's not one or two cars, it's whole collections. And they have sort of it's the Jay Leno's of the world and they have someone to maintain it and they have the right, right storage it's always at the right temperature. The tires get rolled regularly. It's that storage and maintenance component that they don't have to worry about. And that's when you have those two and 300 car collections. Right. And that's the one phone call before it even goes to auction. They get that stuff. Right. The second tier is somebody who maybe has two or three cars, sometimes even just one. They're a very focused collector. A lot of times they'll focus on a time period or a certain maker model. They'll put a million or $2 million to the side and they're sort of actively looking and they're always paying attention. And that's, that's like the core auction consumer. So you have somebody that goes to auction where it's a very small group. The books for an RM Sotheby's or a Goody, for example, might only be, you know, sub 1,000 people that are on their list, kind of a people that they want to make sure know about a particular auction. But even then, they have that very specific list of professionals in the space who have an understanding of the space who are looking for one or two specific things. When those come across their table, they're making that one direct phone call to that high net worth individual who they know for the last year or so has been looking for that particular car. That's what it's been to this point. And for our user group, it's very much, it's retail. It's the enthusiast who cares. They might know every detail about a car, but in order to get access to even one, even if they had the cash, requires a, a level of, of a level of attention and of understanding and of access that has been has eluded them to this point, us included, and myself and my co-founders are part of that group. Um, classic cars um, in general, I mean, this it's got to be, I would think it's got to have some correlation to the economy. To some degree, for yeah. sure. But yeah. what we've seen is that there's... There's two sets. So when, when things go up and to the right, everything goes up and to the right. And you know how that goes. It's, yep. it's real estate drives a lot of that too. Yep. But what we've seen is that when you have stuff that's under the radar, I think the collector group, that group that I talked about, that was the legacy collectors, they move in bunches. So if everybody's on Porsche for a little while, every all of them are on Porsche. And then they'll kind of phase out. Porsche will become sort of under the radar a little bit. They'll move to Ferrari. They'll move to 60s era Maserati. And that kind of drives a lot of the movement from a small group. So what we've seen is that the uncorrelated returns are coming in some of these 80s and 90s vehicles that have attention, but from the five or six or seven people that were moving the market previously, they weren't getting that attention. They're only getting it from the enthusiasts. Now the enthusiast comes in, the ability to sort of disrupt that market a little bit and take what was under the radar. Things like um, the idea that, you know, certain cars mimic others, but like a Ferrari F40, someone who looks at that as the million dollar trophy wasn't always looking at the Ferrari Tesserosa or the Ferrari 512. Yeah. And now you're starting to see the, the dynamic of the, the collectors and investors moving out of what were those older Ferraris and the more sort of the sort of prestige Ferraris moving into the, the lower production number, but newer Ferraris or the, the new collector models. And that makes something like a Ferrari Tesserosa go up 17 or 18% over the course of a year. Whereas the S&P might be flat and other Ferraris from a similar era, but with a different dynamic might be flat. And that's kind of what we're starting to see right now. Let's talk specifically about Rally. Is it, am I pronouncing it right? Is it just rallyroad.com? Yeah, rallyroad. So we, we say rally, it's all the same, but the RD for us was kind of like the uh, Wall Street is its own place. Rally Rose is other place. Kind Got of. it. So it's, yeah, it's rallyrd.com. Um, so who is it for and what exactly is it? That's a perfect question. 
Yeah. So we always look at it that, that rally is about rallying everyone together. People that really care about something, people that have sort of an interest, but have been on the sidelines just watching and letting them get some skin in the game and get some real exposure to the asset class. For us, it's about people very much like us, I think, that have always maintained an interest. They have a lot of information. They want to be educated more about what an individual asset or an individual asset class means. And they're mobile first so that people that come in and do it in an app or do it through the website, but do it in a way where they really want to understand the story and not just the stock ticker. They want to know more about what this asset actually means, what the value chain looks like. They want to see returns over time, but know the story as well. So for us, Rally Road is this app. It's a website and it's an iOS app for Apple iPhones where we let somebody really learn everything about an individual asset and make an investment that they're comfortable with. So we have no minimums. We don't have any sort of restrictions. Uh, it's not for accredited investors only. We have some accredited investors. We have some non-accredited investors. It's really people who understand what these things are, why they're meaningful. They understand that they should be treated like art and that we're trying to find best quality examples and allow you to invest in a position that makes you comfortable without intimidating a user or trying to speak down to them. I think Wall Street a lot of times use a lot of acronyms and they kind of speak to things in a way where it's very much inside baseball. We want this to be for everyone. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about it sort of on a, um, you know, nuts and bolts. Where do the cars mm -hmm. come from? Are they selling? And what is, you know, the role of, of, uh, you know, rally road. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're, we're essentially the, we're managing this process start to finish and we're trying to kind of stay as far away from your decision-making as possible. Uh huh. So, I think, go ahead, I'm sorry. So, so you're, are you functioning essentially as a broker in this process from a seller, um, you know, seller who wants to come on the platform and sell, you know, equity in, in, in their car? Is that kind of in a nutshell? So, is it? We're this kind of middle layer that works in a way that there's a lot of people who have access to fantastic vehicles. And those right. are the people that we keep on network. Those are the relationships that we've established. So a lot of them are private sellers, some are estates. Some are even the auction houses where, you know, if you were to sell a car at auction right now, the process to get that done, it takes time, it takes right. money. It's uh, you're getting charged 25% one way or the other on some side of the transaction or both potentially. And it's kind of out of your hands. We want to make sure it's a thing that the sellers of these assets who maybe have made some money on paper, but need some liquidity out of it. And right. the buyers who really are on the sidelines of these auctions, but want to get access can meet in the middle of best possible price. Right. So what we wind up doing is sort of getting access to the best possible stuff. With our, we have a huge network of advisors, really well-known names in the space, some of the smartest people in the business with hundreds of years of experience. We have kind of an algorithm that speaks to where value might go because we're investors as a company as well. So up to 10% of every asset we buy at the same price as investors. We can never sell until the car exits either. So we have skin in the game the same way. We believe in these assets. And then the buyers that we're bringing to the platform, we're doing it in a way that shrinks down the proposition to tell the best and quickest possible story and allow you to make that decision if you want to invest or not. So everybody in the app sees the whole sort of process start to finish with no sort of need or requirement to invest. And there's no share minimum. So if you wanted to, it's usually at a meaningful price. There is this, the sell, the seller is, is it, I'm trying to understand how that transaction actually happens. Is it, is it that they are, I mean, are, is, is your company buying the car ahead of time and then, and then basically, you know, selling a fractional ownership or is that actual transaction happening in real time as people buy, um, you know, buy equity in it? Yeah. So it's both. That's a good question. We, if we can buy opportunistically, then we'll take money off the books and make that purchase because we're investors as well. So if there's ever a situation where something comes for auction or for sale or an auction company isn't sure that it's going to sell 
to their group that they're bringing to the small group, we have the big group. And whereas people that really understand how this process works, if we have, you know, three Ferraris that we're looking for specifically and the, the data suggests that the right purchase, our user group is asking for it. It's something that we care about and those come up and they're available. We'll make a purchase and put that on the books because we believe in it. If it's an instance where you sort of, you know, have a great investment, you have a vehicle that's worth a million dollars and, you know, you're in a position that you want to sort of get liquidity out of it because it's all on paper, but not go the auction route. We have a, a situation now where our IPO process, when we bring the car to market for the first time and set the price, they happen quick. So we'll do, you know, around $10,000 a minute in initial offering. So we can do something like a debt agreement where we have that agreement to purchase over two months or three months at a very well set price that everybody agrees on. Uh-huh. Uh, we keep the car where it is. We'll get some pictures of it. We'll put a camera on it and make sure that it's being maintained appropriately, which in almost all cases, these are from collectors, they are. Then we'll run the IPO on our platform, come back with a check for you, and then we'll take possession of the vehicle and put it in our storage facility where it's being maintained in concierge 24 hours a day. Got it. So... Um, talk a little bit about, you know, how far along you are in this business. Um, you know, what kinds of things have you done so far? How long you've been in business? What kind of performance people have seen that sort of thing? Yeah. So we're, we've been in business officially, um, around getting close to three years now. So we launched in, uh, we officially launched November of 2017, I believe was our first IPO. Um, the first one we did was, uh, the first set we did was this 1977 Lotus Esprit. And that's a car that, to give you the example of the whole trajectory, over the last two years on our platform, we do the IPO. Once the initial offering is done at that price, which in this case was $77,000, there's a 90-day lockup period where no transactions happen. And then we do once every 60 days, 30 to 60 days is a trading window where we reprice the asset, bring a bunch of buyers and sellers together with kind of bid-esque and set one clearing price end of day that matches the most possible orders. So that's how we kind of give liquidity to actual investors. Over the last two and a half years with that vehicle on the platform, it's up around 35%. And that's pretty, I don't want to say standard because we can't obviously promise any returns, right. but that's kind of meant for cars that we're bringing onto the platform right now. That's pretty indicative of what the trajectory looks like if we're buying well, which in this case we obviously did. Um, and we're always trying to find something that's a little bit under the radar that we feel like our investors would really benefit from hearing the story of a vehicle like that, which is, you know, a Roger Moore James Bond car. And it's something that was the the baseline for what became Tesla. And the, the engineers from Lotus were working on those cars. So it's very, very culturally relevant, something that looks and feels great. It was a perfect example and something that lives on our platform still. One of the things I guess uh, um, I it didn't quite completely address is there is, you know, obviously there's liquidity here, right? I mean, so the idea is that you're this platform, basically you can buy and sell your equity. It's not just buying a, a fraction of a car and then just waiting for it to be sold. Or can you then turn around and sell it on an open um, market? Yeah. So it's, that's a, that I should have mentioned it too. So yeah. the, the big differentiator for us, I think is that we have that liquidity component. The big thing for us was always when we first started this business was, you know, unlocking that liquidity, which for a lot of people is on paper, both for the sellers and for buyers who own a lot of this stuff. So whereas a lot of platforms are doing loans against assets and they were doing things where it was more buy and hold with a very specific redemption period. We wanted to make sure it was something that was accessible and then you can exit. So we're not at a point that's continuous market yet. The goal is to eventually get there. But assets like this, what we've seen is that we have a really responsible marketplace and that, you know, the bid-ask table, which we publish for everybody when we do these trading windows, allows you to see kind of where the price movement is. And that's a little bit of an indicator of where it's going to go, too. So, you know, a big thing for us is always to make sure that liquidity was available. Uh, you mentioned uh, 
you mentioned a little bit about the business model, but I just just to reemphasize because we have a lot of people who are familiar with private placements in the group. But this is really isn't a private placement per se. This is this is effectively brokering. Is uh, that's kind of what your company does, right? I mean, or or are these individually, um, you know, are these all filed with the SEC? Yeah, so these are all A plus qualified offerings with the SEC. So each one of them. Each individual asset? It's its own LLC. So this isn't a bucket of assets. You get to sort of pick and choose the asset you invest in. Understand. Wait, 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 wait. Say that again. I'm, I'm a yeah, little so unclear this, with this, that. I should have made this, this is a really good point. I should have made this point earlier. Yeah. And you have a really sophisticated investor group. I think the listeners will understand this part of yeah. it for sure. That each individual asset is essentially its own series LLC. Okay. So we have the parent company that lives on top, of which yep. there's a shelf. On that shelf go all these individual assets. So we have... Uh, Last week was a, uh, a 1991 Ferrari, 1989 Ferrari. That was 1989 Ferrari LLC, essentially, where it's its own company. Got it. Owns one asset. That asset has a bank account, has a bunch of investors on the cap table. If you're actually filing these, and I'm getting into the weeds, but I know there's just people who know this stuff. That's if you're, yeah, it's interesting. If, yeah. you're, if you're filing these things um, individually, I mean, don't you have to go back and refile every time you add a car? And that would take like over a year just to... Yeah. So in the past it did. So in the beginning, the first one we did took nine months and we were kind of the first people to do it. Uh, the SEC has gotten comfortable with the way that we process these transactions. We've done it in a way that has become very efficient. So we're at a point now that if you had a car to sell, we have our paperwork templated where what's changing, the risk factors stay the same. A lot of the details around the actual offering stay the same. The details for individual vehicle, because we only take cars that have a very succinct timeline where there's no gaps that have very specific check marks that we always want to hit before we take them. So we essentially have 90% of that offering statement filled out before, before we submit. When we get that individual vehicle, we plug in the details, which in a lot of cases, mileage, transmission, things like that. We submit on around a 10 to 15 day turnaround right now. So we're able to do these really efficiently. We're able to do it in a way that's not cost prohibitive and get qualified offerings back in under a month. Ten, wow. So 10 to 15 days with the SEC. That I mean, now, unreal. Three, three, years ago, right. very, three years ago, it was a nine-month process, you know? So yeah. we, we've gotten really, the way that we've developed a lot of what we do, we keep a lot of the smart people around us. And we have a great legal team. Sure. And Max, our CFO, is just incredible at sort of turning these around quickly now. It's a lot of it's been created around the efficiency of taking anything public. So I mean, we're doing it with cars right now, but as we move into, you know, baseball cards and, and wine and whiskey and all these other elements, yeah. it's a very simple process that we have nailed down at this point. Got it. So, um, you know, one of the, I guess one of the things that you, you, you know, as a, as a guy who likes cars and, and a guy who likes whiskey and a guy who likes all these things, you, you think, well, gosh, well, part of, part of being a collector and buyer of these things is being able to experience what you actually bought. Um, is there a, a, a way to do that? Or is this purely like, okay, well, this is what you got. And you know, you own part of this car and you can look at it in this app, but you know, or is there a way to see, touch and feel what you own? Yeah, it's happening. So we always try and make sure there's a way for investors, not just to see what they invest in, but to really experience it. So uh-huh. the first iteration of that is we have a retail storefront here in Soho, right below our office, where anytime there's a marquee offering, we put it in the store. So literally right now in the store is a 1994 Lamborghini Diablo. We have a really great build out around it. We run events in that space. We sell merch there. Also, that drives dividends for investors. So any profit we make in the store, any investor in that car gets a special dividend check with anything we make on top of it. So if we have twice a week now, we're running events for 
you know, the community for hedge funds, for a bunch of private equity companies, uh, VCs and people in our space will run events in our space. They pay for that opportunity. It goes into the bank account for the vehicle, which gets paid a special dividends for the investors. That's the first part of it. The second part is that we have a lot of great people around us now and that we form these awesome partnerships where we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people inside the app who love these individual asset classes and want to learn more. So what we do is we try and get the best possible examples into the platform and into our collection so that we can maintain them in future generations, that, this, that, that these asset classes stick around. What we've done is we've partnered with, like in the wine and whiskey space, we have three or four great names that we partner with. We'll do private tastings for our investors and do some really great lunch and learn type stuff. With the cars, we deal with a lot of individual tracks and spaces outside of New York where we can bring a bunch of investors together, let them drive some similar examples and get a real feel for what these time periods are. So layering on that experience is always a really important part of, for us from the beginning. And now we're starting to do a lot more of it and we're making sure that investors always have access, not just to what they invested in and they get to see it and understand it and learn more, but also get access to experience it or experience things that are really very similar in the same space. Um, the, I guess the, you, you'd mentioned sort of briefly and, and they, that you store the cars. Can you talk a little bit about specifically, you know, where and, you know, what, what measures you're taking to, um, yeah. to, to make sure that those assets remain, um, you know, unscathed? Yeah, we have, we have, we have individual uh, locations in a couple of places. The first of which is in Delaware, which uh, is very similar to sort of a free port where art might be kept. It's a secure facility that was purpose-built for this reason. We have 24-hour concierge there. We have camera, which we're starting to surface into the app, which we'll show more of soon. The tires are rolled on a scheduled basis. There's closed track behind that storage location. And then any of those changes go into the statements in the app. So because this is sort of SEC regulated, because everything is, is purchased and transacted to register broker-dealers, we're required by law to surface all the information that might change it. In terms of insurance, we have this full fleet insurance where now it tracks less price. So in the event that something were to happen to the vehicle unforeseen, which they're not driven, they're professionally maintained and stored, we, we shrink down that possibility to near zero. But in an unforeseen event, whether it be a natural disaster or something else, the last price is paid out to all individual investors based on the insurance policies as well. And now we'll be doing more with bringing those cars to all one central location on the East Coast where it will be more of a museum, kind of like a Peterson Museum style setup, which we'll be doing soon. Cool. Um, where do we learn more? Like if, if people are interested and, and want to yeah, talk. I mean, you can, oh, we, we've, the press has been really good to us. So Googling Rally Road will bring up some great stuff, but also go to our website where rallyroad.com or rallyrd.com. Same thing in the app store. Um, it has all the details about what we do and we're always open to that conversation too. The, I've given my phone number out to hundreds of users where I talk to them all the time. Now we want to make sure that we're always communicating. And then in New York, we're right in Soho too on 250 Lafayette street. Anyone on the East coast, this is our first location. We're doing a lot more of this, but come in. Our staff kind of works as, as very much like investor relations where our entire staff and our retail team is trained to really understand everything about these vehicles, be able to sort of learn and teach the same way that they would if you're walking into a Peterson museum. Well, I guess one last question I should ask Rob is that if somebody is listening and is saying, Gosh, you know, I, I like the fractional thing, but I really just, I'd like to buy, I, I'd like to know where I can, you know, actually source, you know, uh, Lamborghini, you know, Lamborghini Diablo or something like that, that I'm going to take down myself. Do you, do you do any of that or do you know? Uh, yeah, you absolutely. Sources? So we've had a couple of exits off the platform. So, uh, the two cars that sold over the last six months, one was a 2000s era, really special Mustang. Another was a, um, 2006 Ferrari F430 the last uh, gated manual Ferrari. And those sold for a 17 and a 19% gain respectively. So we always want to sort of get the best possible version so that when it's time for someone to come buy it, instead of having to go through the auction house, 
they can come straight to us. And a lot of times we'll have best examples. So we treat it, it's in the app right now, and they can always contact us as well for anything in our inventory. But it's kind of like a uh, hostile takeover. So you have to buy all shares. We yeah. bring that 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 we bring that price potential price to the shareholders once qualified. If we get that sort of uh, majority decision, we go to our advisory board who makes the sale and delivers the vehicle directly to that buyer. Cool. Well, this yeah. is a, a super cool business. Uh, yeah, kind of jealous. <laughs> Likewise, man. I wish I had the setup like you do in the house right now. I'm a little bit jealous of your setup. And then, hey, and you the I don't know. I'd take the, uh, the, the, uh, the Ferraris over, you know, my headset and, and Mike. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm definitely spoiled in that respect. I'll give you that. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being on the show, man. Uh, likewise. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. I think it's really neat. What I find interesting about Rally Road and other businesses like it, you know, we had this uh, a few weeks ago, we had another business on where it was about uh, fractional interest and ownership and fine art. Um, what I find interesting about these kinds of businesses is that, is that essentially it's using fintech to democratize investments that were really previously only available to the ultra wealthy. Now, I think one additional benefit of that is that it could actually drive up the prices of these assets even more. If you think about it, if you open up these assets that were otherwise just there for people who could, you know, pull half million, million dollars, or, you know, $20 million at a time, that marketplace is not very big. The ca you know market, if you think about it in terms of like a market cap, right? It's not very big. There's just not that many participants in that market. But if you open it up to you know a rare R to a rare car um, marketplace, all up to accredited investors, you know, like country club investors like us. That's what they call us, by the way. That's a huge injection of capital into these previously hidden marketplaces. So. Um, and if that hypothesis is true, I would think that now's the time to get in. But anyway, uh, it's, uh, if nothing else, it's nice to know these opportunities are out there. They're really interesting. Uh, and at the very least, I highly suggest downloading the app and checking it out. It, again, it's really cool. Um, anyway, before we go, one last request I have from you, which is, you know, and I don't ask you for this very often, but when you, when, when you get a chance, can you... Go to wealthformula.com and click on the five-star review button at the top. It'll take you to the iTunes page. And if you think the show deserves it, you know, give me a five-star review, write a review, whatever. The more subscribers and reviews uh, that we get on iTunes, the more leverage we have in getting the best guests and attracting more listeners. So uh, that's how we continue to keep the quality. We have some really, really good guests coming up in the next um, month or so. And it's for this reason is because we've got a good reputation and that's all, um, frankly, from the statistics. So, uh, that makes everyone's experience, mine and yours alike, uh, better. So if you're not, if you've not done so, make sure you do your part, go to wealthformula.com at the top of the page. You'll see where it says, give us a five-star review, click it, and it'll guide you through the process and tell your friends too, you know, don't keep this stuff to yourself. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. 
See you next time.